All right. If we'll do, I'll I'll do it this way. I was going to have everyone just participate, but I'll just do this this way. If you were to look at the uh, Church One app, I'm going to find it here really quick. If you were to go to the Church One app and uh, pull up our information, if I can find us, Let's see here we go. Go to recent series, and if I go to the Roman series, and if I hit sort, and I go from oldest to newest, you'll notice that the first sermon that was ever preached in our series on the book of Romans occurred in 2019. means we have been studying the book of Romans since 2019, and today is March the 13th, 2022, and we finally come to Romans chapter 9. That's finally where we are. That means we have got uh, probably at least two more years, if not three, to finish the book. That means it's going it's taking a long time. Now, the reason I say that is to demonstrate, obviously, first and foremost, that this church has always, I mean, when this church started, I said from the very beginning, if we're going to just be like every other church, there's no point in existing because there's other churches, Right? So if we're going to be like them, let's just go to them. But if we're going to be different, let's really be different. And one of the main, main emphasis I said is that the church is not here to entertain people. The church is to equip people. And equipping does not happen through entertaining. It happens through serious teaching on God's word. And one of the, reason, one of the things I've tried to do is not just say, Hey, let's, I mean, because there's almost like a template. You become a pastor. I think, I think the letter comes in, the, in your, you know, your mailbox and you, you open it up and it's like, okay, here's what you do. Have a, have a funny little story to introduce the sermon, right? Have three little points, a sad story at the end. Make sure you're done in 35 minutes. And then everyone just kind of sits there passively listening. They may, get, they may get right down the three points in the outline and everybody says, good sermon. And everybody goes home and, or they run to the buffet and get there by noon, okay? Well, I, you know, obviously I took the letter and I burned it and I said, no, I'm not following that. I'm not going to, not going to go with that because my, my focus is if we're going to actually study the text, then it's not just me studying the text. You, you are involved in the study of the text. You're involved in working through it and trying to figure it out. So sometimes I teach like I know the answer. Sometimes I teach like I don't know the answer because I'm trying to get you to find the answer. Sometimes I leave you with questions and no answers because I want you to try to find the answers for yourself. That's why we do the Bible study exercise every week for the podcast because I'm getting people involved in the actual study of the text. And I'm trying to prepare you because we're about to enter a section of study that's not going to be easy. Now, I know every chapter in the book of Romans, what do I say every time we start a new chapter in Romans? This is the most difficult chapter in the entire book until we go to the next chapter. This is the most difficult chapter in the entire book. So we've done that eight times now, right? At least. Well, we're getting ready to do that now, but we're not going to be, we're going to, the next part we're going to break down as a section. We're going to be studying Romans 9, 10, and 11. And we're going to put them together. And here's the reason we're going to put 9, 10, and 11 together. Because there's a lot of people who believe 9, 10, and 11 possibly shouldn't even be there. Because it appears to make absolutely no sense that it is there. 
Many people would argue, you go to Romans chapter 8, you get the end of Romans chapter 8, you immediately jump to Romans chapter 12, and the book would make perfect sense, and you would not miss anything by skipping 9, 10, and 11. So some say 9, 10, and 11 is a parenthesis, but here's the problem. They don't know why it's there. Or at least that is the argument put forth by many. Many, many would say that there's just a, a, a lot of different issues. For example, one commentary all right, says this. Romans 9 through 11 is one of the most fascinating passages in the entire New Testament. It is filled with essential and practical doctrine, and it focuses on one particular subject. Some feel that the chapters serve as some kind of parentheses, parentheses and doesn't have any real connection to the rest of the book. And the reason they don't believe it has any connection to the rest of the book is because of what it focuses on. So let me challenge you. Let's see if you can remember this. All right, this is very important. If we take the book of Romans as a whole, what is the primary purpose and focus of the book of Romans? Now, I know we're missing lots of people, so the ones that are here, you're going to have to be the ones to step up and give me the answers. Sarah's not here. Twyla's not here. Okay, Twyla, you're listening online. Maybe I have to wait for Twyla to give me the answer. But I'm giving you the opportunity to everyone present. What is the main... I mean, we've been studying the book since 2019. If I've reached to March 22, 2022, and y'all don't know this, then I'm just walking out the door. I'm going to go home. I'm going to start drinking heavily. And uh, that's going to be the, the end, okay? But, okay, but, but I, so I don't even know if I should ask the question, oh, but hang on, I'm going to turn the volume down and go open the Spreaker app really quick so that if anybody is making comments in the chat. Okay, well, that, that's, okay, we, we, we need more than that, okay? There's, all, there's really only one subject for the whole book. What? Okay, well, okay, go ahead. Just add a little bit more to that. You're going in the right direction. You're, starting, you're using a word that starts with a G. You may want to use a word that starts with a J. Justification. 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 How can sinful people be made just before a holy God? They know what the book's been about over and 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 over. How does God justify us? Do we justify ourselves? Does God justify us? Do we choose God? Did God choose us? Like all of these things we've been talking about and talking about. Well, if justification has been the major focus, right? And see, well, there you go. Twyla got it right. Okay, I knew Twyla would get it right. Okay, so justification is what the book is about. Well, if it's been about justification, and then all of a sudden you're just moving along justification. How did chapter 8 end? Everybody can go look at it. How did chapter 8 end? It's open book. It's, it's you're free to look. I mean, sometimes open book tests are the hardest tests. They shouldn't be, but they are. It ends with these wonderful blessings, right? Yes? Okay. All things work together for good. We talked about that. We, remember, we had the different arrows. These things go, do they refer to what comes before, they come after? And then we end with that in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life. In Christ, I'm justified. And because of I'm in Christ and I'm justified, I'm more than a conqueror. In what way? Because I'm more, I'm, I'm more than a conqueror over death, right? I'm more than conqueror over sin because I'm declared perfectly righteous, not because that I am, but because of imputed righteousness. Yes? 
It's all of the blessings that flow from justification. All right, so you're like, okay, we're still talking about justification in a roundabout way. Jump to chapter 12, verse 1. Everybody should know, you shouldn't even have to look. Chapter 12, verse 1. How does it begin? What, no, well, don't, don't jump to the holy living. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. God's mercy is shown in what? His justifying of sinners. That's mercy. What do sinners deserve? Judgment, not mercy. Yes? All right. So then we start with, because of God's mercy, what should be, what should be the practical results of us being confronted for eight chapters with God's overwhelming mercy and grace. It should lead us to do what? Romans chapter 12, verse 1, again, open book. Present yourself a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And what should motivate you? How does Paul begin? I beseech you, therefore, at the very beginning... By the mercies of God. God's mercy. So chapter 12 to 16 is what we should do because of we of God's justification. All right. That's great. 8 to 12 makes sense. What in the world's going on in 9, 10, and 11? What do those three chapters even exist? All right. So let's do this. Everybody got their Bibles open. Now you're going to be doing this. So I hope you participate because if you don't, it's going to be an hour of silence. All right. I'm I'm making you do this. Everybody ready? Romans chapter nine. All right. Twyla, you're listening. I'm counting on you. I'm counting on you, Twyla. All right. Here we go. All right. Romans nine through 11. Everybody good? Here's what I want you to do. Start in chapter nine. I want you to go verse by verse. And I want you to write down every reference to Israel. Every time Israel is mentioned in chapter 9, 10, and 11. Just on your notes, just write down the reference. Chapter and verse, chapter and verse. Right? You can skim. You can go fast if you're a speed reader. Shouldn't take you very long. If you're a very, 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 very slow reader, find someone in the church who is faster and sit next to them, okay? If you need to phone a friend, phone a friend. Do whatever is necessary. I want you to see this for yourself. I'm giving you the opportunity to, to, to do so. All right? Every time Israel is mentioned... I know some of you are thinking, I, I didn't come to church to do the work. I, we, we come to church to hear the work that you did, but it doesn't work that way here. All right, I'll give you opportunity. If you finish chapter 9, let me know. I know in chapter 9, verse 4, Israelites is used, and you can, that, that, that works. It doesn't have to just be Israel, but any, any reference to Israel. 
You may even find a verse that gives a reference to Israel without actually mentioning Israel, but clearly it's referencing Israel. Every verse that mentions Israel, and chapter 10 and chapter 11. Okay, okay well, you, you, you could make an argument that it does, but at least let's find the verses that mentions it, first and foremost. You could make an argument the entire chapter. You could make the, an argument all of chapter 10. You could make an argument all of chapter 11. But that would be me making an assertion without proving it. But I can prove in an objective way exactly how many times the word is used. Or like you're going to prove that. You could cheat, but I'm not going to you know, tell you how to do that. I mean, some of you should have figured that out by now. If you have the Blue Letter Bible app, just type in Israel and then just reduce your search to Romans, and then there you have it. But okay. But I won't tell you how to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, know, I know it was a joke. All right. All right. Where are we at? Where are we at? Oh, you're in 10? Okay, so is that, did everybody finish 9? Oh, you're in 11. Okay. Someone's moving quick back there. All right. That's good. I'll give it a couple more seconds. People tuning in going, well, they're, they're not saying anything. It's, it's, it's a new kind of church service where we just don't talk. Okay. All right, we haven't found? We close? Do we find them all, Stephen? Okay. All right, you're in 11, okay. All right, oh, Lydia's done. All right, Lydia's the first one to be done. All right, that's good. All right, Lydia, we're going we're gonna to grade, grade on a curve, okay? Well, we'll, see. we'll see how well Lydia did. All right, okay, chapter 9. Where's the first mention of Israel in chapter 9? I hear verse 3. Does everybody agree? Let's read, starting in verse 1. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have a great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Now, does some translations use Israel in verse 3? I mean, clearly we know who they're referencing in verse 3, so that's perfectly okay to have it down. down. Okay, verse 3 says Israel. Okay, how does it read? Okay, in verse 3? Okay, and then it says in verse 4? That's verse 4, yeah. Okay, all right. Yeah, so verse 4 is the one who actually mentions it, but clearly we know who they're talking about in verse 3. Everybody agree? Okay, but verse 4 is the first mention. Who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. Everybody see that? All right. What's uh, the next time it's used? Verse 6. 
not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are Israel. Right? Next. Verse 8. That is, that which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise, uh, are counted for the seed. That doesn't mention Israel, but we know who they're referring to there. Yes. Okay. Okay, Abraham's offspring, obviously. Okay, next. All right, uh, and even uh, us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now, it doesn't say Israel, but we can get an idea who's being referenced. Yes, okay. Next verse. 27. Isaiah also cried concerning... Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. All right, everybody got that? Next, 31. But Israel, which followeth after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Everybody got that? All right. So how many times in chapter 9 is, it actually, is the word itself mentioned? Just the word itself, Israel. In chapter 9, someone said 6. Okay, we have Israelites mentioned in verse 3, or verse 4, I should say. Okay, verse, well, we need the exact number. Okay, All right, we, 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 this is not, this is, this is Bible, okay? <laughs> okay, this is not, okay, it's like, well, you know, just, we can just round it up. No. Verse 4 is mentioned. Everybody see the word Israelites in verse 4? Verse 6, we see the word Israel. Okay, everybody see that? Right, so 4 and 6, it's both mentioned, right? That's twice, yes? Next verse where it's... Do what? Okay, it says, yeah, twice in uh, 6. Thank you. All right, so that's three times. Thank you, thank you. Three times. Next, where it's actually mentioned. 27. Everybody see that? It's mentioned twice. All right, so how many times is that? All right, we have five. Next. 31. It's mentioned once. All right? So six times in chapter 9. Would everybody agree with that? All right, six times. No disagreements. All right, we're all good. All right. Six times. Now, chapter 10. Where's the first time it's used in chapter 10? Verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, that they might be saved. All right? Next verse, keep, keep count of where, uh, where it's actually used. The word Israel is actually used. 19. But I say, did not Israel know? Everybody got that? First, Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. All right, everybody see that? Then verse 21. But to Israel saith all day long, I have stretched forth my hand unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. So how many times in chapter 10? Three. How many times is that total? Six and nine. Three and ten. Nine. Okay. All right. Good. All right. Let's see if we, we can do math here. All right. Chapter 11. All right. First time it's used. 
Verse 1, all right? I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. All right? It's also used in verse 2. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. What he not that the scripture saith Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, right? Everybody see that? Next, verse 7, What then? Israel hath obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath... What? Let me read this again. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which it seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Next, verse 25, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Verse 26, So all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, Thou shalt come out of Sion, the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Next. Is that it? All right. How many times in chapter 11? All right, so what's our total number? We have 14? Does everybody agree? 14? 14 times in three chapters Israel is mentioned, and it could be argued that all three chapters are about whom? Israel. Now here's the question. What in the world is going on? What's the book about? Where, why is Israel mentioned in 19 and 11? That's why a lot of people are like, well, I, we don't know, we don't know. Some people would even argue, just skip it. Just skip 1911. It's like it's not, it doesn't make any sense. It's a parenthesis. It's broken. It's out of context. Why is it there? So what would be the question we would need to ask ourselves? Why is it there? Why is it there? Now go back to chapter 8. What was the major emphasis in chapter 8? It's dealing with justification, yes, but it's dealing with what and when it guards to justification. How about God's sovereignty in justification? Would that be a good way of describing it? And what were six words that we talked about in Romans chapter 8? Foreknowledge, predestination, called, Oh, justification. No, no way we mentioned justification. I, I, I refuse to believe it's there. Okay, next. Glorification, and then elect. Ah, okay. Now, so we have basically the fact that God is sovereign in justification and how the process, in a sense, in eternity past worked and us receiving justification. And we learned the reason I received justification is not because of something I did, could do, would do, should do, but because of the sovereign, eternal plan of God played out in time and in my life and in your life. Yes? All right, that's great. Now, we can immediately jump to chapter 12 and go, now, because I've received this such a great mercy, here's what I should do. So now I got 9, 10, 11. That's all about Israel. So what in the world does it have to do with the subject? 
What do you think? Question. Chapters 9, 10, and 11. Does it, does it refer to Israel in any way, shape, or form in those three chapters? Uh, connecting Israel to the subject of election. We've, I read every verse where it's used, so I've already given you the answer. Is Israel connected to election in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans 9, 10, and 11? Okay, we have adoption. Okay, Jacob and Esau is mentioned. Okay. What else? All right, let's go to Romans chapter 11, verse 1. Okay, I, 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 uh, we'll go through this. Everybody ready? Romans chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Let's stop right here. Now, before we go any further and we try to answer this question, let's remind ourselves, okay, when it comes to the subject of Israel in theology and in church history, there are very different schools of thought. All right? Let's go with one school of thought, and that is God is done with Israel. The end, no more, they're finished. They're irrelevant. They don't count. There's no promises coming to them. They're done. Basically, they disqualified themselves because of their sin. God is finished with them. No more. All right? I'm, gonna, I'm simplifying these. I'm simplifying these so that you know. So we'll say view number one is that God is done with whom? Israel. So any promises that were given to them no longer go to them. You go to the Old Testament, you're like, well, God promised this, this, it doesn't matter. They don't get those promises. What do they get? All the judgment. They don't get any of the promises. They lost all the promises. Promises of land, they don't get the land. All the promises that he's going to turn all unrighteousness away from Jacob doesn't apply to Israel. Israel is finished. They are done. Right? That's view number one. View, do what? A whole lot of promises, okay? A whole lot of promises, but that doesn't count. So, all right, so that, I'm just, I'm so, I, now, there's, there's an overlap here, but just go along with me, all right? So that's view number one, they're done. View number two, and I know there's overlap here, I'm not trying to define them in specific theological terms, I'm just trying to make it simple so that you understand, okay? View number two is that Israel has been replaced. Israel got replaced, he chose them, and then he replaced them. And guess who he replaced them with? Us. So guess what happens? All of the judgments go to whom? Israel, and all the promises come to who? Us. So the chosen was replaced by the chosen, and we get the blessings, not the Judgments. But do we get all the blessings? 
Not technically, because typically when they go back into the Old Testament and you see some of the promises, what do they do with some of those promises? Spiritualize them and say, well, we're not going to actually get that in a literal way. We're going to get it in a figurative way that really amounts to not much of anything. Well, you got to, I got to get there. I got to get there. Okay. So I'm just, I, I just, I'm getting there. Okay. So there's first, so what, what's the first school of thought? Boom, Israel, you're done. Goodbye. You're, you're, you're irrelevant. Who cares? Right. Second, sorry, Israel. Sorry. We're in. You're out. Sorry, guys. You know, I'm, I'm glad you messed up because we get all of your promises. They're probably like, that's kind of messed up, okay? All right, but just stay with me. And then the third view. What's the third view? The promises are not done. Israel's not been replaced. Israel's been set aside. To the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. They've been set aside. Set aside isn't replaced. Set aside isn't finished. Set aside is set aside for a period of time. Think of it this way. We can call the third view is, and I'm by no means trying to trivial, make it you know, a trivial thing or to mock it, but basically the third view is Israel's currently in time out. Until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Whatever the time of the Gentiles is, when that is fulfilled, then those are your three views. Israel's done, Israel's been replaced, or God is not done with Israel. Now, if God is done with Israel, right? If Israel's been replaced, chapters 9 through 11 seem very weird, do they not? They, it seems even more weird for this reason. Are you ready? This is very important. Little is known about how Christianity first arrived in Rome. There seems to be no biblical evidence to support the tradition that Peter was, first, was the first to preach the gospel in Rome. The gospel may have been taken there by Jews from Rome who believed in Jesus on Pentecost. It was already present in AD 49 when Emperor Claudius expelled Jews from the city, among whom were the Christian couple Priscilla and Aquila. Now, please note, who was uh, removed from the city in A.D. 49? Jews are removed from the city. By the time Paul wrote Romans, the majority of the believers were, what do you think? Gentiles. Wait a minute. Paul is writing to Gentiles. Eight chapters to help them understand the gospel and justification. And then all of a sudden in the middle, he's like, stop, we're going to talk about Israel. Isn't that weird? He's writing to a Gentile church. The Jews have been what? Kicked out of the city. They've been exiled. So you got to look, just from a, like you're looking at like what is going on. So, if God is done with Israel, chapters 9 through 11 make even less sense. Yes? Why talk about them? If they've been replaced, what's the point of mentioning them? Why mention them, right? I mean, why even bring them up? 
He's gone eight chapters without talking about him. Has it worked? Did, you, did we go, well, I don't understand justification unless I understand Israel. Not if Israel's been replaced, right? I just got to understand my relationship to justification. Has he done a pretty good job of explaining that in eight chapters? Well, then let's just go to chapter 12 and get on with it, right? Why take this massive three-chapter detour to talk about Israel? It seems bizarre. That makes it even more confusing. Yes? So that would give you a clue. That seems to indicate that chapters 9, 10, and 11, when dealing with Israel, has to somehow connect Israel with what subject? Justification. Oh, that's interesting. Or, even more specific, what was chapter 8 about again? God's sovereignty and justification. How does God's sovereignty and justification relate to whom? Israel. Now, what could chapter 9, 10, and 11 be then? Well, let's go to chapter 11 and see what happens here. Everybody ready? I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abram of the tribe of Benjamin. Stop right here. What question does he, what hypothetical question does he bring up? Is God done with Israel? And Paul's like, God forbid, I'm an Israelite. Now make it very clear. He identifies himself as an Israelite using what descriptors? He's using that that describes national Israel. He's not using terms to describe some spiritual Israel. He's describing himself as a Jew, right? What is what are the descriptors he uses? I'm an Israelite, and he says what? The seed of Abraham, tribe of Benjamin. He even identifies his tribe, and he starts. Is God done with Israel? God forbid. He says no. Now, I don't care who wants to argue with me. Paul says, God forbid. I will say this. Paul knows more than you. Right? Is that, is that, I, I, that, you may not like that, but you, I mean, don't take the argument with me. Find Paul and say, Paul, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. Right? But Do I? Well, yeah, well, obviously, yeah, I'm being a little facetious, but yeah, it's the word of God, yes. Obviously, we couldn't argue. He's saying, God forbid, God is not done. Now, why is that important in relation to chapter 8? Thinking caps on. What is chapter 8 about again? God's sovereignty, God's election. So, if God is not done with Israel, what does that have to say about election? That when God chooses, he doesn't unchoose. I don't know if you know this, that's really good news. Because if God chose me, but I can't count on him to keep me, that would be really problematic. If God chose Israel, then decided, I'm done with you, that means he could be done with you. Everyone who says this has no connection to the rest of the book, I don't understand why they say that. This seems to be very important. 
Think about it. This Israel's about to become what in chapters 9, 10, and 11? Okay, they're going to be history. They're going to be used in, in a very important way, in a literary way. As an object lesson. I've tried to explain justification about you. Let me take a few minutes to tell you how justification and election works with the nation of Israel. If God is not done with Israel after everything they had done, that gives me assurance. Go back to, what's the last couple of words of chapter 8? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. If nothing can separate Israel from God's love, then nothing can separate me from God's love. Name all the things that are mentioned there about separating us from the love of God. What are all the things mentioned in chapter 8? Death? Life? Angels? Demons? Basically, anything and everything is mentioned, yes? Height, depth, no creature, nothing. Go through the entire Old Testament. Does Israel face pretty much everything? Yes, they face everything. Every challenge. And some people conclude, well, you know what? You loved Jacob and you hated Esau, but guess what? You turned your back on Jacob and you kicked him out. You elected Jacob, but you threw him out. You replaced them. That's messed up. I will argue that if you say God is finished with Israel, you've now destroyed the entire doctrine of election. You've systematically destroyed the entire argument in chapter 8. Some people read chapter 9, 10, and 11 and say, See, God is done with Israel. And I go to chapter 11, verse 1, and I read, I say then, hath God cast away his people? What people is he referring to in chapter 11? Israel. What is the answer? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abram, of the tribe of Benjamin. Verse 2. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. That goes back to chapter 8. God has not cast away the people he foreknew. Which people? Israel. How many? Look, chapter 9, 10 is all about Israel, right? Which carries right into chapter 11. How, this is what blows me away about theology. How can you have something so emphatically stated, yet so dogmatically denied by people who will argue with you? Is that not pretty emphatic? Let, let me read it again. Maybe, maybe I'm misreading it, okay? Let's try again. I did go to Jim Ned. So, so, you know, the, my, who knows if I can even possibly read anything, right? Okay. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. I cannot stress the importance of the way he describes him being an Israelite. He doesn't describe it in a spiritual way. He describes it in the most nationalistic, fleshly way. I'm... I'm a, of this tribe. That's a clear descriptor of him being an Israelite, yes? How were, they, how were they identified over and over and over in the Old Testament? By tribes. 
Right? You can't come along. I don't care if you have a Matthew Henry commentary. I don't care what people in, in church history have done to try to rewrite this. This is about as dogmatic as it can get. God hath not, look at verse 2. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. What ye not, what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy people and dig down thine altars and I am left alone and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Verse 5. Even then, at this present time, also there is a remnant according to... Wait, now we have election? We have four new. Does this sound like chapter 8? How can people say this has no connection to chapter 8? I don't understand. What's the next word? Our next verse. And if it by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. What is, he, what is he yelling? What is he trying to say to get, to get a point across? Israel's salvation is going to be based off God's foreknowledge, God's electing, and God's grace, not based off their works. If you say God is done with Israel, then what are you basing it off of? Their works. And if you're going to kick out Israel, you better just line up and kick yourself out. Isn't it amazing how we will say God is done with Israel, but he will never be done with me. You're saying you're better than Israel? Does anybody here think they're better than Israel? If you think you are, then, I mean, then, then you've, you've got a different spiritual problem. It's called, well, arrogance and self-righteousness, okay? You're not better than them. In fact, they're used over and over as an example to us, yes? Why does God use them as an example? Because we're very much like what? Them. What does the next verse say? Read verse 7. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which it seeketh for but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. What's it emphasizing? Election. What has been emphasized? Grace, foreknowledge, election. What was emphasized in chapter 8? What was emphasized in chapter 7, chapter 6, chapter 5, chapter 4? Grace. Grace. Salvation is a work of grace. Who is a picture of that? Israel. Did Israel sin? Did Israel mess up 50 billion times? Yes. Did they deserve anything but judgment? That's all they deserved. Who are they like? Why, why, does, why, why can nothing separate me from the love of God? Because God saved me based off his grace, 
his sovereign work, not me. If it was based off me, I would be condemned. If it was based off what you do, you would be condemned. Does that make sense? I, I cannot... I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know what else I can say or how much, you know, much more I can try to make it clear. Um, yeah. Uh, go to uh, verse 25. Go to verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Okay, now he doesn't want them to be ignorant of something. Now, it's interesting, right? Who's he writing to? Hmm, he's writing to Gentiles. He's writing to a Gentile church, and he doesn't want them to be ignorant of something. Why would they be ignorant of something? Why would they possibly be ignorant? They'd be ignorant because they're Gentiles, right? They didn't grow up learning the Old Testament. They didn't grow up knowing all of this stuff. They didn't grow up memorizing Old Testament scripture, right? They're they're all new to this. And he's like, I don't want you to be ignorant. And what does he say? Lest you should be wise in your own conceit. I don't want you to become arrogant. And then what does he go on to tell them? That blindness in part has happened to Israel... Until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Don't be arrogant. God has blinded them, set them aside until the the Gentiles come in. And then what happens in the next verse? God is going to fulfill what? His promises. What is God going to fulfill? His covenants. What is God going to fulfill? All of that. Because Israel deserves it? No. No. Did they obtain it by work? No, they obtained it by grace. Israel is the object lesson in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Is everything in 9, 10, 11 super easy to figure out? Okay, just say no. That's always the right answer. No, it's not easy to figure out. Does it raise a million questions? It does. But this is what we can know. 9, 10, and 11 follow 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. That's pretty deep. Aren't you glad you come to church to figure that out? Right? But it's significant because a lot of commentaries want to put them together and then just say, these are are just set aside. We don't really know why they're here. I think the reason they're there is obvious. But why would some people not want them to be, why would some theologians and some commentaries want to separate them? what they believe about Israel. If God is done with Israel, does it make any sense Paul taking three chapters to tell a Gentile church about Israel? It would if you believe this. If you believe that you can lose your salvation. Israel would be very important. If you believe God is done with Israel, then God could be done with you. So then it would be important. But if you don't believe you can lose your salvation, Israel would not make, and you believe God is done with Israel, these chapters would be really confusing, yes? He's writing to a, look, look, here's what absolutely cannot be debated. He's writing to a Gentile church in a city where the Jews had been exiled. That's historical fact. Yes? He clearly connects Israel to what subjects in chapter 11? He connects Israel to what subjects? Salvation by grace, God's foreknowledge, and election. Which goes directly right back to chapter 
8. Clearly, he doesn't need to go back and reestablish that we're saved by grace and election when he already did it in 8. That would make 9, 10, 11 not make any sense, correct? Unless 9, 10, and 11 is not about how God saves Gentiles, but how God is saving Israel and will save them. Then it makes, it makes sense, yes? There's some things that just cannot be debated here. So if God is done with Israel, it seems weird that 9, 10, and 11 exist. Everybody agree? If God has replaced Israel, what's the point of 9, 10, and 11? He's writing to Gentiles, right? He's already established how we're saved, yes? Why even bring up Israel? Doesn't even, why even mention them anymore, right? Why ever, why ever speak of them ever again? There would be no point. But he, he, he mentions them and he uses very specific language in so doing. All right? Um, verse, uh, look at verse 27. Or, or look at verse 26. And so all Israel shall be saved as it is written. As it is written. That's referencing to what? Old Testament. And what does he say? There shall come out of Zion, or Zion, the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from whom? Jacob. Where does that go back to? Now we got Jacob mentioned. Is Jacob mentioned in chapter 8 of Romans? Is Jacob and Esau mentioned in chapter 8 of Romans? may not be mentioned in 8. You may be right. It may be mentioned back in 9. 8 sets up the principle, and then 9. Okay, it's chapter 9. Okay, all right. Now, so, all right, well, that's even more important, all right, because we're in 11, but I just want, because I want, because 11 is easy to show the, the connection, but we could have actually started in 9. But, okay, so let's do this. Go back to chapter 9. What verse mentions Jacob and Esau? And what does it say about Jacob and Esau? God had loved Jacob and hated Esau before they were born. With that what? He says something about something. I'm not trying to give it away. Something about election. The purpose of God according to election will stand, right? Not of works. So that's chapter 9, right? Which literally goes right back to chapter 8, yes? Okay, so chapter 8. And so now election's being applied to whom in chapter 9? Israel, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, right? Jacob's name's going to be changed to what? Israel. The 12 tribes come from whom? Jacob, right? Okay, I mean, like, I mean, uh, I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to start figuring this out, right? So Israel has been elected. Yes? Then when we get to chapter 11, what do we have here? Now we have a promise that he's going back to the Old Testament. And what is he going to do? As it is written, a deliverer will come from Zion and turn away ungodliness from whom? Jacob. Paul is writing about this in chapter 11 of Romans. Jacob has been dead for a couple of thousand years. 
He's not referring to the man Jacob. He's referring to whom? Israel. God made a promise that he's going to do what with Israel? And what does the next verse say? And what's the next verse? For this is my covenant unto them. Who's the them? Israel, when I shall take away their sins. All right. Now, there's much more I could go into here, but we're at 12.03, so we'll do this. All right, very important. So, here's what I want you to understand. Romans 9 through 11 is a section all dedicated to one subject, Israel. That subject directly relates to justification and election that had already been established in the chapters preceding 9 through 11. Directly connected. Can everybody can see that? Right? So, let's go through this. Number one, 9 through 11 is all about what? Israel. It is directly related to justification and election talked about in the previous chapters. Yes? Okay. All right. Everybody got that? Number three. Israel is going to be given to us as an object lesson about justification and election. What is the significance of this Object lesson. What is the significance of it? God will never be done with his elect. Just state it that way, right? God will never be done with his elect. Nothing can, what, how did he end chapter 8? I can't, I'm going I'm to keep going back to the end of chapter 8 like 9,000 times. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. What is the greatest proof that nothing can separate me from the love of, love of God? Say it. Israel. The greatest proof that nothing can separate you from the love of God is Israel. Isn't it great? See, we, may, we can come up with every theory we want. We can cast Israel aside. We can throw them out. We can do whatever we want in our theology. The good thing is, you don't make the determination. God does. You can make all the arguments you want. I don't know how much play... How, look, here's the thing. If we can't understand Romans 11, then we just should just give up and just throw out the Bible. Because, I mean, what is, how many times does Paul say, is God done with Israel? God forbid. No! No, no. That's good news. It, it, it's really weird when people get upset and want to argue that God is done with Israel. Why would you want to argue that? Here's, the th- here's what I would say. If anybody wants to argue that God is done with Israel, then I ask of you to be consistent and no longer believe in the eternal security of the believer. Because you cannot believe in the eternal security of the believer and then have God throw out an entire nation that he made a covenant with and he made a promise with and he can just break that covenant and break that promise whenever he feels like it. Because if he can't, if he didn't keep his promise to Israel, he's not going to keep, why should he keep his promise to you? Then you make God a liar, so therefore you don't believe in the God of the Bible. At this point, you should just leave Christianity. I mean, you basically, you're destroying everything, Right? 
But you can't believe, oh no, well, my salvation is secure, but Israel's wasn't. In fact, when you go back to Jeremiah, who did he make the new covenant with? I mean, it's very interesting in Jeremiah, is it not? I will establish a new covenant, not like the one I made with their fathers. That clearly tells you he's referring to Israel, right? Okay, and he says, I'm going to make it with the house of Jacob and Israel. Why is that bizarre? Or Judah and Israel. He says Judah and Israel. Okay, uh, I'm, Jacob's on, on thinking Jacob. Judah and Israel. Why is that absolutely crazy that that's said in Jeremiah? The kingdom's divided. What is going on? He makes a new covenant. We, I know Christians, we always say, no, he made a new covenant with me. No, 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 no. He made a new covenant with Israel. So how, how, what's, how do I get to be a part of the new covenant? tells us in chapters 9, 10, 11 of Romans. We're grafted in. We're grafted in. But the covenant was actually made with Israel. We actually take a covenant that was made for Israel and we go and we rip it out of their hands and say, it's not for you. How dare you? Or we say that when, he, when Jeremiah said, I'm going to make a covenant with the house of Judah and the house of Israel, he didn't actually mean Judah and Israel. He meant spiritual Israel, which is complete, absolute nonsense. Nobody at that time would even know what that even meant. When you say house of Judah and house of Israel, and I'm making it not like the ones I made with your fathers, if you can't understand that verse, then, then all hope of biblical hermeneutics is over. Right? So, I want to just make it very clear of those concepts that I've just given you. The main thing is that this, ob- this is an object lesson. Is there going to be like a thousand questions to figure out? Yeah. There's some things I don't understand. But there's some, look, what do you always do when we come to the passages that are complicated and that are difficult? We back up and go with what, what we clearly know. What can we, what can we be dogmatic when we leave here this morning? We can be dogmatic that... Romans was written to a church of Gentiles in a city where Jews had been exiled. He spent eight chapters explaining justification and election to us. All of a sudden, in 9, 10, and 11, he starts talking about Israel, which would make no sense unless Israel is a picture of God's election and justification. That would give them assurance. Yes? And he ended chapter 8 with trying to give them assurance. And by the time you get to chapter 12, now that you've spent three chapters seeing God's great mercy and grace to Israel, should you not be motivated in chapter 12 to now present your body a living sacrifice because you're serving and worshiping a God that is so merciful that he has kept his covenant promises to a nation that had turned their back on him over and over and over and over and over and over again. Meaning that God will still be faithful to me even when I am unfaithful. That's the power of 9, 10, and 11. You can call it a parenthesis, but it's not a parenthesis disconnected with what comes before or what comes after. It serves as, it's, it's like this. I've been teaching on the subject for this long. Now I'm going to stop and give you an illustration. Then I'm going to go back to my teaching. That doesn't make the illustration irrelevant. It makes it absolutely important to the whole book. Does that make sense? So that's, I'm just going to stop there. There's much more we could say, but that gives you a better understanding of 9, 10, and 11. Any questions?
All right. There you go. Right? And you've got the three basic views. Right? There we go. And ju- if you just do it, if you just say it that way, one wants to get rid of it, one wants to replace it, and one says God is not done with Israel, that avoids all of the negative connotations. Because if I start identifying amillennial, dispensational, then everybody loses their minds. Because I don't want to be a dispensationalist. I don't want to be an amillennialist. Okay? Just get rid of the theological terms and just get with the basic concept. Either God is done with Israel, God replaced Israel, or he's not done with Israel. What does Paul say in chapter 11 multiple times? He's not done. If I can't understand that, then, then there's no understanding anything in the Bible. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean I have to go full-blown every detail of discipline? I don't have to, listen, you, the, the theological systems are there to help us give a structure. doesn't mean you have to buy, be so connected to a theological structure that you can never deviate. I, I don't like that, like, I'm on team dispensational, or I'm on team all-millennial. How about we just be on the team of Scripture, right? And figure out what Scripture says. Because sometimes I may agree with one side and may disagree with another side. I don't want to be identified by a side. I want to be identified with trying to figure out the Scriptures. The theological systems are there to help me maybe define something, but I'm willing to weave in between to figure out what the Scriptures say. What, typically what happens in church is whatever the pastor's theology he learned in seminary he just stands behind the pulpit, gives you that theology, quotes some scripture, and you're thinking you're getting Bible when all you're really getting is the systematic theology that your pastor learned in seminary. That's not Bible study. Bible studies, we dig into the text, and we don't care which team gets offended. Does that make sense? I don't care about teams. I'm not on team anything. I'm on team truth. I got no problem identifying with certain systems of theology by all means. I want to know those systems of theology, but I'm not like handcuffed to it. And I always hate that. Like we've had people walk in here. Well, you're not reformed enough or you're this or you're that. It's like, does everything have to follow? Like you got to be wearing team. It's almost like you're a street gang. Oh, I don't see the right colors. We're going to have to shoot you. Okay. I'm not, I'm not here to wear the colors of my, my gang. I'm here to try to figure out what the Bible says, right? But, it, but that, that's what the churches turn into basically, think of church as street gang, and you've got to be wearing, you gotta, you know, you gotta be wearing the right color. You've got the wrong color, they shoot you. And it's like, that's, that shouldn't be the way it works in church. We're not street gangs. Hey, this is my turf, so you stay away. You know, this is, you, you're, oh, oh, Bobby, you're on the wrong side of town, man. We've got to kill you, okay, because you, you don't fit with that. That stuff is nonsense. I don't like that thing. I'm just trying to figure out the truth. All right, hopefully that makes sense. All right, people tuning into that last illustration will be like, what in the world is that church talking about? But, okay. but you get the, I hope you get the idea. Because okay? I've always gotten myself in trouble because I don't stick with the team. I don't stick with the team. I'm like, oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm not on your team. I'm on trying to figure out what the Bible says. Right? That's what matters. All right, let's pray. Look, okay, we come before you this afternoon. Very, very important section of Scripture. I hope we have at least did a decent job in introducing it and working through it is not going to be an easy task. It's going to raise many problems and many difficulties, but I pray that we will be committed to working through three chapters that some say are some very complicated and very difficult, but we're willing to work through it no matter how hard it may be 
so that we can uncover the truth.